Fellow students, if you could open Revelation 19, we are now moving into the um, happy dance part of Revelation. The judgments are not quite done, but we're now beginning to see uh, the glory of God move in some different ways. This is really the climax of the book of Revelation, and in many ways it's the climax of the book of the Bible, it's the entire Bible, it's the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's a major theme throughout Scripture, the second coming, just to give you some perspective. John MacArthur noted that uh, there are 1,527 Old Testament passages that deal specifically and refer to the second coming of Christ. There's about 8,000 verses in the New Testament. 330 of them refer to the second coming, so about one out of every 25. For every time the first coming of Christ is mentioned in Scripture, his second coming is mentioned eight times. So there's this eight times as many references to the second coming of Jesus as there are the first ones. Jesus himself referred to his second coming 21 times. And over 50 times in the New Testament, we as believers are, are exhorted to be ready, to get ready. So here's the key idea for today. Jesus' return will end Satan's rule. Jesus' return will end Satan's rule, and that changes everything. We really have no idea the impact of sin on the planet because it's all we know. We really don't know what it's like without that. And when Jesus returns and takes over this planet, it will change everything. So Revelation 4 to 18, where we've been now for several months, deals with the events of the Great Tribulation. Remember we said the Tribulation is a seven-year period where Jesus Christ is repossessing his planet. How many of you have ever rehabbed a house? Rehab the room in a house. The first thing you do before you build the new stuff is what? You got to tear out the old stuff. So that's where we've been now for several months, tearing out the old stuff. You know, God is dealing with sin and Satan and wicked and wicked one. And it's been messy and there's been a huge amount of judgment. He's preparing the earth, just like you prepare your kitchen for the new cabinets, the new floor, the new appliances, etc., etc. So God is in the, in the business of repossessing his planet and preparing it for his coming kingdom. Today we're going to move in chapter 19 from the focus is going to change from trouble on earth really to triumph in heaven. Look at verse 1. After these things, that's after, the, after chapter 17 and 18, I heard as it were a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, verse 2, because his judgments are true and righteous. Now, after these things, anytime you see that in Revelation, at the Greek there is metatauta, and it means a new vision. So John is saying this is chronological, this is sequential. Not all of Revelation is sequential, but chapter 17 and 18 come before chapter 19. So after the destruction of Babylon, appreciate that. And we're talking about destruction. Yeah, some germs got destroyed. After the destruction of Babylon in chapter 18 comes the, 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 the hallelujah praises of heaven in chapter 19. Now, hallelujah is obviously a, a word that occurs in Scripture, but not very often. As a matter of fact, it only shows up in this chapter. The only time you see hallelujah in the entire New Testament is right here. And it shows up four times. Hallel, H-A-L-A-L, means praise, and Yah is the first syllable of Yahweh, right, which is the name of God, Jehovah, is the transliteration. So it literally means praise the Lord. And we were singing today in the first service, Alleluia, 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 right? It's praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord in English. So clearly, when you see Hallelujah show up four times in about six or seven verses, heaven's pretty happy. You say, well, I thought heaven was always happy. Yes, but there are times it's more happy than others. And right now they're very, very happy. And they're praising God because he's worthy of praise. And they start listing the reasons why he's worthy of praise. And they tell you that immediately. Number one, salvation. Salvation belongs to our God. What that means is that salvation comes only from God and nowhere else. For those of you, most of you know, every other religion on earth every other religion except Christianity promotes the belief that human effort makes one worthy of God's favor. If only you do enough good works, you can earn God's favor, and that means you can obligate God so that he will owe you a place in heaven. Every other religion except Christianity teaches that. Christianity is unique in that it says that 
only salvation is completely of the Lord. It's a gift of God to us based on God's grace, not on our forgiveness, not, not on our worthiness, and not on our works. The problem with a works-based mechanisms of salvation, which is religion, it makes man the center. And it makes God the servant, right? If I work hard enough, God owes me. Folks, God doesn't owe anybody. He never will owe anybody, and he will never be in anybody's obligation. Understand? Salvation is what? A gift. The gift of God. Only the gift of God. There's tremendous freedom in that because even Pope John Paul II, before he died, said he hoped that he had done enough good works to earn a place in heaven. And you know something you and I don't ever have to worry about? If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord, you know you've got a dwelling place in heaven with your name on it, reserved. And it's not because of what you did or what you will do. You can't earn your way into heaven and you can't earn your way out of heaven. Amen? Amen. You're there based on the finished work of Jesus Christ and only the finished work of Jesus Christ. And heaven is giving God the glory because that salvation demonstrates his character. It demonstrates his conduct. So salvation is one of the key listings that heaven is praising him for, but it also mentions his glory and his power that are part of his attributes. So you're looking at heaven and you're saying they're praising God for his character, who he is, but they're also praising him for his conduct, what he does. What does he do? Verse 2, it says they're praising God because his judgments are true and righteous. And you say, well, what do you mean his judgments? Well, last week we spent the entire week or the entire lesson looking at what God did in chapter 18, which was destroy the wicked system of Babylon, the, the satanic system of rebellion against God. So God has acted in perfect righteous and in truthful judgment in destroying the evil of Babylon. See, Babylon, the, the, the satanically inspired system of rebellion against God that's been in place since the Garden of Eden deserved exactly what she got. God had been patient with this system, which we live in, by the way, right now. Rebellion against God is a planetary phenomenon, has been since Adam and Eve. God's been patient with that for century after century after century after century. The day will come, which we found out last week when God says, I'm done. I'm done. I'm now dealing with it. I'm not going to live with it anymore. Romans 12, 19 reminds us, vengeance is whose? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. That day is coming when he's going to clean the slate. So they're praising God for his righteous judgment. The last part of verse 2 explains what he did. For he has judged the great harlot, that's the Babylonian system of rebellion against God inspired by Satan, that's the harlot, who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. Here's the principle. <clears throat> God is intolerant of evil because it violates his character and it kills those he loves. God is intolerant of evil because it violates his character and kills those he loves. See, Babylon is likened to an adulterous harlot because she has, what, broken her covenant broken her marriage covenant like Gomer did with Hosea, the wife of Hosea. This system of evil, this system of rebellion against God represents everyone around the world for all time who has revolted against God's rule and followed Satan's rebellion. I'll tell you what Babylon is like. We talked a little bit about this last week. Babylon is like the Ebola virus. It is a deadly infectious disease that transmits death on contact, right? We talked last week, we're born in sin, but we also transmit sin. Even worse, Babylon killed those who spoke for God. What does it say? It says God had to avenge the blood of his bondservants on her because Satan has always been trying to kill people who speak for God. That's always what's happened. This system, this worldwide system of evil that's organized by Satan, leads people into sin and leads people away from salvation. She deserved to be destroyed. Last week we saw her destruction. Heaven is rejoicing over the destruction of evil. That sounds a little strange to our ears. We live in a world that is so comfortable with evil, so compromised with evil, that destroying evil sounds quaint. It almost sounds barbaric, right? Modern culture says what? Live and let 
live. Everyone has a right to live exactly like they choose. Judges, the last verse of the book of Judges said, every man did what was right in their own you do whatever you want to do, and whatever you want to do is okay, and that's the culture, and that's a lie of Satan, because good and evil have been redefined as personal lifestyle choice. You can do whatever you want to do. The only cultural absolute today is tolerating everything. Absolutely everything. If you are intolerant of anything, that is the only evil in this culture. You know something, if we practice toleration in medicine like we do in morals, billions of people would die. You don't tolerate Ebola. What do we do with Ebola? We quarantine it, right? You remember two years ago we had Ebola scare? Man, it was really frightening. People quarantine. They, I mean, it's huge. You, you do everything you can to contain this thing. We don't tolerate cancer. We don't tolerate hepatitis C. We don't tolerate polio. We don't tolerate smallpox. We destroy disease because we understand if we don't kill it, it will kill us, right? However, we tolerate and practice moral evil because we don't believe God. We believe Satan's lie that human choices do not have eternal consequences. That's the lie of Satan. You can make choices today and there's no eternal consequences. God says, oh yes, there is eternal consequences, verse 3. Heaven says a second time, hallelujah, praise God, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now this is the smoke of the destruction of Babylon. Remember God sent a fireball on the place and incinerated it. So the smoke is rising up forever and ever. He's not just talking about the physical city, he's talking about the people that followed Satan, rebelled against God, and tragically there are billions and billions of people in hell because they chose to be there. No one goes to hell because God sends them there. People go to hell because they refuse God's payment for their sin through Jesus Christ the Son. The lake of fire was not built for humans. It was built for Satan. Understand that. People wind up in hell because they choose to refuse to accept Jesus Christ's payment for sin so they can spend eternity with Jesus Christ. The payment has been made. The door has been opened. People that are in hell have refused to walk through the door of Jesus Christ, the door to life. Now, it says forever and ever. That literally means until the ages of the ages. Hell has no end. The lake of fire and its smoke lasts forever. Here's the point. God's hatred of evil will never end because his holiness will never end. And that's something we should be very, very grateful for. What would the universe be like if God said, I think I'm going to tolerate some evil? Just a little. Well, number one, he would not be a just God. And number two, the moral fabric of the universe would tear. We are counting on the holiness of God to hold everything together. His holiness is non-compromisable. He will never make a permanent peace with evil. God's holiness will never tolerate evil in his presence any more than you would tolerate a serial killer as your child's babysitter. You wouldn't do it, right? I hope not. There are some things in this life for which you should have zero tolerance. Now that is a radical statement in this culture where we're told to tolerate everything. And being closed-minded is the only sin that's you know, accepted in this culture. Zero tolerance can be a matter of life and death. Like drinking and driving, <clears throat> like skydiving without a parachute. I mean, there are some things you should have zero tolerance for. Moral evil in our life should not be tolerated. Now, I know it's real easy to be zero tolerant of somebody else's moral evil. That's real simple. God says, get the log out of your own eye before you worry about the speck in there. I'm talking about moral tolerance in our own life for evil. We should have zero tolerance for moral evil in our life. See, for God to be good, evil can't be tolerated. It has to be destroyed. Let me give you a picture. For you to stay physically healthy, you know what has to happen? Your body has to kill disease inside you. If your body stops killing disease inside you, what will happen? Disease will take over and you will die physically. For you to remain spiritually healthy, sin in your soul has to die. Right? You declare war on that stuff by the power of Almighty God. See, the evil of sin is really ultimately dealt with only one of two ways. It's either dealt at the cross 
where you accept Jesus Christ's payment for your sins or in the lake of fire where people choose to pay for their own sins. This is not a popular message, but I'm telling you, it's the holiness of God is on the line and heaven is rejoicing at the destruction of evil and so should we. Especially the destruction of evil in me. By far. Verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. The third Alleluia in four verses. So the 24 elders, remember, they represent redeemed humanity. They represent anybody who belongs to God, God's people, whether they're tribulation saints, Old Testament saints, church saints, if you belong to God, these 24 elders represent you. And the four living creatures, of course, are cherubim. They represent all the holy angels. So all of heaven... Mankind and angels are saying, praise the Lord for the third time. And they're worshiping. And to worship, remember we talked about it, it means what? Literally to bow down. Worship means to bow down to God's will, God's person, because everything God says is true and everything God does is right. Now, did you realize how quick I said that? Everything God says is true. And everything God does is right. There's no clause on there that says everything God says is true as long as he agrees with me. That's not what it says. It says everything God says is true and everything God does is right, even if it doesn't agree with me, right? We are to conform to his will. That's what worship is. It's bowing down to his will. Verse 5, And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Do you know what staggers me about this verse? <clears throat> this is in heaven, right? There's no sin in heaven. And yet an angel tells you to worship God in heaven. You wouldn't think we'd need to be prompted there, right? Apparently, it's a call to worship. Here's the principle. When we fail to give God the praise he deserves, we are stealing from him. When we fail to give God the praise he deserves, we are stealing from him. An angel is exhorting God's people to praise him. You know, I don't know anybody who says, I just refuse to praise God. I refuse to give him credit. I refuse to give him glory. If you belong to him, you're going to want to do that. But even as we belong to him, it's terribly easy to neglect giving God the praise. It's terribly easy to neglect giving God the credit. So when someone gives you a congratulations and says, boy, blah, 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 you know it's real easy to go, mm, yeah, yeah, I deserve that. I worked hard for that. I'm really that good. Yes, I am. You just stole God's glory. Because your next breath comes from where? Your next heartbeat comes from where? The only reason you haven't gotten a call from your doctor yet is because we live by grace. Our next breath comes from our king. So never ever claim the credit for what God alone can do. It's interesting, I wasn't going to put this in, but I'm thinking of Moses. Moses was told by God and the children of Israel, they're running out of water. Actually, they're out of water. There's two million of them in the desert. There's no water. And God says, what am I going to do? They want to stone me. There's no water. And God says, I got a solution. Go speak to that big rock over there, and that big rock will produce water. Moses is so angry with the people, the children of Israel, he goes over with his staff, and he strikes the rock. He doesn't speak to it like he was commanded. He strikes the rock, and he says, Shall we, shall Aaron and I give you water out of that rock, you rebels? What was he doing? He was putting himself in the place of God. He was saying, I'm going to bring water for you out of the rock instead of God. And for that sin, he was denied entry into the Holy Land, into the land of Canaan. God said, you didn't treat me as holy. You stole my glory. Be very, very careful not to take credit for what God alone can do. You know, on our jobs, if you work very hard at your job in order to earn a bonus and somebody else takes the credit and collects your bonus money, how do you feel? How do you think God feels? Protect his glory. Give him the credit. Give him the praise. Verse 6. 
And I heard, as it were, the sound of a great multitude and the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah. It's the fourth time. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. In this, the, it, it, John is struggling for words. He says, as it were. He's, he's hearing this vast sound. It's almost like the Niagara Falls. It's almost like being behind a jet aircraft engine. I mean, the sound that he hears is just dominating everything. Ever been really near a lightning strike? I mean, in the sense that when you saw the lightning, the thunder just went pow like that. I've been around lightning strikes, not very often here in California, but occasionally they'll rattle the windows to get close enough. Well, put that on steroids. This is a huge sound at that point in time. And earth, heaven is preoccupied with praise and they're making a lot of noise. It's interesting to me that almost everything in heaven is loud. They never say, oh, there was these nice, sweet little voices praising God. Every time you see music or praise in heaven, it's like it's a loud voice. And I don't know if everybody's shouting or just the reality of heaven is such that it's just much more massive, much more real, much larger than what we have down here. But it's interesting that it always talks about praise that's happening with a loud voice at that point in time. So... These, these, uh, these folks here are saying the last phrase of verse 6, we sang this morning, last hour. Those of you who have not been to the 11 o'clock service, you need to hear this message. Five loaves, two fishes, you need to hear this message. Some of us are struggling with stuff in life that's overwhelming, and you need to hear this message. It's unbelievable, Pastor Roger. The last phrase of verse 6, we just sang, hallelujah. For the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Heaven is praising God for an event that is still in process. God is still in the process of repossessing his planet and establishing his righteous reign. Heaven sees that and they're giving him praise. They also call to worship here in verse 7, 8, and 9. Heaven says, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for, underline this, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Verse 8, And it was given to her, the bride, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous act of the saints. Verse 9, And he, the angel, said to me, the angel said to John, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Here's the principle. God's whole purpose in creation and redemption is an intimate relationship between him and us. The whole reason God created you and I, the whole reason God redeemed you and I, is amazingly, he wants a relationship with us. And he wants an intimate relationship with us. This is really the consummation of history. The union of God and man together forever is the goal of God. God's relationship with his people has always been portrayed in terms of a marriage. Marriage between husband and wife really pictures Jesus Christ's relationship with us, his church, with his people. Ephesians 5.25 kind of gives us the picture. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. What's the standard? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the standard. Now, I want, you, I want to walk you through a first century Jewish wedding. So you understand the sequence of what happens when a Jewish couple got married so we can understand this Revelation passage. The first step in any Jewish wedding was the legal arrangement. The legal consummation of a Jewish marriage took place between the parents of the bride and the groom. It could happen when they're teenagers. It could happen at birth. It could happen when they're young children. These were arranged marriages. You didn't go down to the village school and go, aha, Cutie pie, I think I'm going to date that one. It was already all done. By the time your hormones started working, you'd been pledged probably for years, right? Actually, they had very few divorces, so maybe, maybe they were onto something at that point in time. So when, when the father of the bride, the father of the groom, made the arrangements for the marriage, the father of the groom paid the bride price to the father of the bride, right? There was always a bride price. And they signed the marriage covenant. That was done before the marriage. It could happen a year before, at least a year, but it also could happen long before then. And they were now considered engaged or betrothed. Now, in Jewish world, betrothal was a very big deal. It was a legal covenant. And that's why if you were going to break a betrothal, it was a, literally considered a divorce. 
Remember when Joseph and Mary were engaged and she was pregnant with Jesus? Joseph was going to divorce her. They weren't married yet, but they were engaged. It was a very serious business being betrothed. So they signed the legal agreement, and then the bridegroom would go back to his father's house in the village and begin to build an addition onto the family home. That addition onto the family home is where he and his bride were going to live and start their family. So you literally have these compounds. You had mom and dad's house, and you might have two or three sons, and they might have two or three you know, additions built onto the family home. So you, you, know, you get a few generations, you get a pretty big compound at this point in time. And so the bridegroom is building the addition onto the family home where he and his bride are going to live, and the bride is at her father's house, parents' house, preparing for her wedding day. That's step one. Step two is the fetching of the bride, the getting of the bride. When the dwelling place is complete, when the bridegroom is finished building the addition to the house, the father of the groom sets the time for the wedding. And the father of the groom sends his son, the bridegroom, to fetch the bride. The groom and the wedding party now, all dressed up, they're going to come to the home of the bride's parents, usually about sundown. Matthew 25 gives you a little bit of that. He's going to claim his bride. She doesn't know the exact time he's going to come. Got an idea, but she doesn't know the exact time. So typically, there's going to be a shout to kind of let everybody know they're coming. But the bride is always expected to be ready when he shows up. She's got to be ready. That's the parable of the ten virgins, five wise, five foolish, five were ready, five weren't. So when the bridegroom came, there's going to be a big shout, the bridegroom's coming, and that's to let everybody in the bride's family know that the bridegroom's coming. So the third step is that the entire party, the bride and groom and their wedding party, would travel back to the groom's father's house for three things, the wedding ceremony, the consummation of the marriage, and the wedding feast, in that order. And that wedding feast could last seven days, you know. John records the wedding at Cana, where Jesus had a, had a you know, he didn't have to. He chose to make additional wine. Well, you know why? It was a seven-day reception. I think about it. Seven days. How much cake and punch could you eat in seven days? I mean, you'd be ODing on sugar. This was, this was a serious business. Seven-day reception. So they really did this thing well. Now, if you look now, you understand a little of the history. If you look at Christ and his bride, the church, from the perspective of a Jewish wedding, you understand the following. Number one. The marriage covenant between God and us, between Jesus and us, was established at Jesus' first coming. Whenever anyone by faith trusts God, trusts Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, they enter into the marriage covenant with Jesus Christ, right? That by faith, accepting his payment for your sins is entering the marriage covenant. It's entering a relationship. Jesus paid the bride price himself. Where? On the cross. He shed his own blood. He paid the price for our sins so we can have a relationship with us. Because if he didn't pay the bride price, if he didn't shed his blood for our sins, we don't have a relationship with him because our sins separate us from him. And he paid that price so we could have a relationship with him. So following his death, resurrection, and ascension, where did Jesus go? Back to his father's house, right? What's he doing up there? He's preparing a place for his bride. He's preparing a place for you and me, right? John 14 says, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, right? Many rooms. I go to do what? Prepare a place for you. I go to build you a house. I'm building an addition onto my Father's house, and it's got your name on it. And if I go and prepare a place for you, what? I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there may be also. So between the point of salvation and the rapture, what are we supposed to be doing? Being ready, like the bride is being ready for her groom to come back, right? He's busy building the addition onto his father's house for them to live. That's what Jesus is doing. He's giving them that word picture because the first century Jewish believer would go, I get it, I get it. You're going to prepare the house and you're going to come back. Now the second step is the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is when Christ the bridegroom comes back to claim his bride and catch her away to his father's house in heaven. By the way, there's absolutely nothing left on God's prophetic calendar that has to be fulfilled before Jesus comes back for his church. Not one thing. Which means he can come back today. I hope he does. He can come back anytime. 
Now, in Revelation 19, where we are now, we're at the third phase of the wedding. We've already had, right, the marriage covenant contract ended the death of Jesus Christ. We're in the marriage covenant. We have not the marriage ceremony. We're, 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 we're waiting for that. We've been raptured. We've come back. We're going to find out in a few minutes. And we now are at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the wedding, if you look at this sequentially, the wedding's already taken place. It's, it happened in heaven. We're talking here about the wedding feast, the wedding supper. That occurred after the ceremony. This is kind of the reception, if you will, and it takes place on earth after all the judgments of God are over at the beginning of the millennium. So that's coming up. The bride has made herself ready. How do we know that? Because she's gotten rid of her old clothes of self-righteousness and God has given her his clothing of righteousness. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It says, we're wearing fine linen, which are the righteous acts of the saints. Okay? Understand, when they talk about the righteous acts of the saints, you are not saved by your good works. Amen? But when you are saved, one of the evidences is that you will do good works. If there's no fruit on the tree, what can you conclude? It's probably dead, right? What do you do if you've got a dead fruit tree in your yard? Uh, you might wait a year or two, but if it stays dead, you're probably going to take it out, right? Because it's not productive at that point. So you're not saved by works, but, work, but faith that's saved is always accompanied by works. Verse 10. John is so overcome when he gets this message from the angel, he falls down to worship the angel. Verse 10. I fell at his feet to worship him, and the angel said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours. And your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, the message here is pretty clear. Who are you to worship? And who else? Here's a little question for you. If you care more about people's opinion of you than you do about God's opinion of you, Maybe you've got an idol. Think about it. We say, yeah, I worship God alone. But whose opinion do I care about the most? Who's going to influence my behavior more? What God says or what people say? Be real careful with that one because we're all influenced by our culture. One of the reasons we always, we're just manic about it here, stay in the word so you know what God says. If you watch six hours of TV a day, you're probably being more programmed by the culture than you are by the word. I'm not saying TV's evil. I'm just saying monitor your time, right? Pay attention to who's got you influenced. We're all influenced. It's a question of who's got us influenced. Verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Now, we're now shifting gears from what's gone on in heaven to what's going to happen from heaven. Here's the principle. Jesus is, will return to earth as the conquering king and righteous judge. Jesus will return to earth as the conquering king and righteous judge. See, heaven is opened up now. John sees heaven opened up. And it's not opened up for humans for salvation to let people in. Heaven is open now to let the warrior king, Jesus Christ, out. Not for mercy but for judgment. Jesus prophesied this in Matthew 24, verse 27. Jesus is talking about his second coming, and he says, here's what's going to be like. He's talking to the disciples. He says, just as the lightning comes from the east, flashes to the west, even so shall the son of, coming of the Son of Man be, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, here's, what, here's what's going to be going on the planet when Jesus comes back. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heaven will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth, all the nations, will mourn when they see the man coming, Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. The contrast here is stark. Revelation 5 illustrates this is not the baby Jesus in the major. This is the lion from the tribe of Judah. The Lord Jesus Christ is worthy to repossess the earth because he creates it, he owned it, and he's going to rule it. This is not Jesus the suffering servant 
riding the humble donkey coming into Jerusalem in peace. This is who? The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's riding a white horse and he's coming to earth to do what? Wage war and destroy his enemies. That's pretty dramatic because most people on the planet think Jesus is a nice guy. It doesn't say he's a nice guy. It says he's the king and he's a warrior king and he's coming back to make war. That means to kill. This, by the way, this second coming is not the rapture of the church. The raptures of the church already taken place. Clearly, I believe a literal interpretation of Scripture indicates that a pre-tribulation rapture is the correct way to interpret this passage and the New Testament in general. In the rapture, Christ meets his church in the air, right? And he takes them to his Father's house in heaven. At the second coming, Jesus Christ comes down to earth and he brings his saints with him to set up his earthly kingdom. There's no judgment at the rapture. This second coming is all about judgment of the wicked. When the rapture occurs, it'll be invisible and it'll be instant. You will disappear. You will be taken immediately to heaven to be with Jesus. The world won't know what happened or why it happened. Jesus says, when I come the second time, every eye is going to see me. There's going to be no sun, no moon. The stars are going to fall from the sky. The earth's going to be shaken. And all of a sudden, when there's dead blackout, the sign of the Son of Man is going to occur like lightning. And it's going to be blinding light. And he's going to come on the clouds of heaven. And every eye is going to see him. And it says they're going to be in terror. Because who's left? Only those who are rebelling. Only those who have refused the gift of Jesus Christ. Only those who are revolting. The name of this warrior king is faithful and true. He's faithful because he keeps his promises, all of them. You know, this struck me this week. Are you grateful God keeps all his promises? Yes. Now, before you say that, remember, he, he, he makes promises to reward and he makes promises to punish. Yes? He will keep all of them. He will forget None of them. He promised to be returned, and he's now fulfilling that promise because he's the God who cannot lie. It says, he judges and wages war, and it gives you a little phrase. It says, in righteousness he judges and wages war. See, the first time Jesus came, he came as a savior. Now he came, comes as a judge. The first time he came, wicked men judged him, and now he's going to judge wicked men. The first time he came in mercy to save, and now he comes in wrath to judge and to execute. The first time he came to make peace, now he comes time to make war, and it's a just and righteous war. See, most of the book of Revelation is about what? <clears throat> God's war on evil. I mean, chapter 6 through 18 is all about God's war on evil. You look and you go, man, this is a long war. It keeps going, and it's a stark war, and it's an awful war. That's because sin is so ugly. When you read the judgments of God in this book, and you go, boy, these are pretty extreme. That's because sin is so extreme. We don't understand how, how extreme it is because we live with it. God says it has to be destroyed. See, for centuries, God's mercy has restrained his judgment. His patience has held back his wrath. For centuries, God's held the door of heaven open and called everyone to enter in. Here's something about the omniscience of God. God knows the exact moment when the very last human being that is going to repent will repent. God knows the exact second when the very last human being that will repent is going to do that. After that time, God knows that no one alive on the planet is going to repent. He knows that because he's omniscient. He already knows that they will not repent no matter what happens, regardless of opportunity, warning, judgment, appeal, miracle, they're not going to repent. He knows that. At that point in time, judgment's going to fall. God will never make peace with evil, but this coming is when God's going to put an end to evil finally. Verse 12. His eyes are a flame of fire. Upon his head are many diadems. He has a name written upon him that no one knows what himself, but himself. Did the, who did, um, was it the eagles who did, you can't hide your lion eyes? Yes. Who did, is that the eagles? Okay. I got another phrase on that. You can't hide from Jesus' eyes, you know. Jesus is a righteous warrior because he's got x-ray vision, right? He can see everything with complete accuracy. 
But these eyes of Jesus, they wept over Jerusalem, right? These same eyes shed tears over Lazarus. These same eyes had compassion on the little children. And now these x-ray eyes are probing every soul and every heart with complete accuracy. So his judgment is accurate because he sees with complete accuracy. And it says he's wearing many diadems. What's a diadem? Diadem's a crown. It's not a Stephanos. A Stephanos is a victor crown, a warrior crown. A diadem is a royal crown, a royal crown, crown of the kings. And it's interesting, he's got more than one on. See, he's got a head full of crowns. Now, in the ancient world, when you were the victor over a king that you conquered, you collected their crown. What's the implication? No one else on the planet's got any crowns because he is what? King of kings and Lord of lords. He's, he's conquered everyone at this point in time. You know, it's interesting. Once Jesus Christ wore a crown of thorns, then he wore the victor's crown, and now he's wearing the royal crown of supreme authority. It says he's got a name written on him that no one knows but himself. You know, in the Bible, your name represents your identity. Your name represents your identity. Have you ever looked up your name to see what it means? Anybody ever looked up your name to see what it means? Was it shocking? Did you say, what were they thinking? You know, parents? Well, your name is who you are in Scripture. That's why God, in many cases, told the parents, you're going to name him Jesus. Why? For he will save their people from their sins. The name means Savior. So Jesus here has a name that no one knows except himself. I've got a theory on that name. I think it's the name above every name that God the Father gave him in Philippians 2. Right? He humbled himself, became obedient to the cross, therefore God highly exalted and gave him the name which is above every name. I don't know what that is. It says no one knows, but he knows. It also reveals that you will never, ever, ever completely know Jesus Christ. When we get to heaven, we will spend eternity getting to know him. You will never know him comprehensively. How many of you have been married um, at least 25 years? How many of you would say you have an exhaustive knowledge of your spouse? <laughs> She's not that shallow and you're not that smart. I know you have a true knowledge of your spouse, but you don't have an exhaustive knowledge of your spouse because we keep growing and we keep changing, right? So how much more, how much less do we know about Almighty God? We know a fraction. It's true what we know because he's told us truth, but it's not exhaustive. And that's one of the glories of heaven. We'll spend eternity getting to know each other and getting to know God better. One of the things that will be so fascinating in heaven, or intriguing as my friend John would say, is there's no sin. So there's parts of your character I'll never see down here because you're hiding, and I am too. That's what sin does. It causes us to hide like Adam. In heaven, we can be transparent. The exploration will be magnificent. Verse 13. Jesus comes, and one of his descriptions is he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. It's interesting. He's wearing clothing that is blood-stained. And you say, why is he coming back with blood-stained clothing? Well, I want you to get a perspective. This is not his first rodeo. I mean battle. This is his last battle. Jesus Christ has been fighting on behalf of his people for centuries. He fought Pharaoh. He fought the kings of Canaan. He fought Satan the dragon. He fought all the empires that sought to destroy his people. He's the warrior king. Jesus Christ is the veteran of millennia of warfare. And he spilled his own blood on the cross in his battle over sin and death. He's now going to tread the winepress of the wrath of God. He's blood-stained, blood-spattered because he's done battle for you and me. And his name is called the Word of God. Who do you think this person is? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The warrior king is Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity. But Jesus doesn't come alone. He comes back, but he didn't come by himself. Verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in white linen 
white and clean. We're following him on white horses. He brings at least, how many armies does he have with him? At least, look at your Bible. What's it say? It says armies, z, 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 at least two, right? There's at least two. There's multiple armies, not just one. Matthew 16, 27 says, when I come back, I'm going to come back with my holy angels. And verse 8 of this same chapter tells us that the bride of Christ, the church, was given fine linen, and these armies are wearing the same thing. So we have two armies, one an angelic army and two an army of believers. And they're coming back with him, and they're bright and clean, which means their wedding ceremonies are already taking place in heaven. Now, you say, well, that's all good, but how's Jesus Christ going to do battle? Verse 15 tells you. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he had a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, it's important to understand that the Bible uses figurative language, symbolic language, to give you a signpost for truth. Jesus Christ does not have a literal rumpha, which is a Roman long sword coming out of his mouth. Okay, not literal. He doesn't, he's not riding on a flesh and blood horse. Okay, you understand that. There's not a literal wine press where he treads out literal grapes. John's using figurative language to illustrate the truth. He saw truth. He saw this. He saw this. Okay. But they're symbols designed to depict eternal reality. In scripture, the sword always represents power. Anytime you see sword in Scripture, it always represents power, and it's usually the power to kill, the power to deal out death. God's mouth speaks God's word, which represents God's power. So when you see the mouth of God speaking the word of God, that's the power of God. What does Genesis 1-3 said? And God said, let there be light, and there was light, instantly. God speaks the world into existence. His word has power. Now, we're already told that God is going to strike the earth with his mouth. Isaiah 11.4. For those of you that want to see an Old Testament cross-reference, Isaiah 11.4. He, Jesus, will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. He doesn't have a literal rod coming out of his mouth. It's talking about his word, the power of his word. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. So at his second coming right here, he's going to destroy the nations. And by the way, next week we're going to do the battle of Carmageddon. I mean, Armageddon. Carmageddon is what they do down in L.A. Carmageddon? Yeah. Okay. yeah. The freeways and stuff. They have that in Washington right now. Carmageddon. You know, ice everywhere. It's a mess. But anyway, at his second coming, he's going to destroy the nations by his word. Only his word. And it's interesting when you look at this, is anybody carrying weapons? I don't even see anybody here with a CCW. I mean, there's no <laughs> weapons anywhere here, right? Who's got the weapon? Only Jesus Christ. And it's his word. It's his word. The word of God, the sword of the spirit, slays the wicked instantly. We're going to spend a fair amount of time in the battle of Armageddon, or the campaign of Armageddon, more accurately, next week. And it says that he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. You know something? When Jesus rules, there won't be a United Nations. You won't need any human armies. You won't need boots on the ground. It won't take years for a court to adjudicate a case. You won't have any corrupt judges. Justice is going to be accurate and swift because he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. Jesus Christ's kingdom is going to not be a democracy. It's not going to be an oligarchy. It's going to be a monarchy of love and righteousness, but it will be a monarchy. How many monarchs are there? One, king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus will never take a poll to find out how people will vote in the next election. You won't ever see Jesus running for office because he's the king. You can't elect him, you can't impeach him, and he's not going to resign. And he's never going to die. Now this should give you great comfort because when the king comes back, he's going to set everything right. The reason the world's a mess right now is Satan, the usurper, has been given authority to operate things under the divine will of God. And you look at what Satan does and you go, come back quickly, Father. Come back quickly and take this place over. Ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, humans have been experimenting with government. You know, the perennial question of government is always the same. 
there's only one question. Who shall rule? Who shall rule is the perennial question of the human race. You know, you don't have to look very far today because everyone wants to rule. Yes? Everyone wants the levers of power in their hands. And because everyone wants to rule, we schedule debates. And armies march, <clears throat> and wars are fought, and murders are committed, and intrigues are plotted, and marriages are arranged, and divorces multiply, and treaties are made and broken. And borders are moved and moved again, and taxes are raised, and promises are made and then broken. All in the name of who shall rule. And when Jesus Christ comes back, no one will ever answer, ask that question again. Because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Philippians 2 says, Every knee will bow and every will tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So this should give us tremendous hope. Because when you look at the world and you look at your life, and you look at people in your world and you see the brokenness on the planet, you understand that nothing less than a regime change of power from the universe down here is going to make a difference. Human rule over human is disaster. And it has been ever since the Garden of Eden. Our attempts to patchwork this planet are making it worse, not better. Only the king returning is going to make it better again. Let's review our key ideas and then Tom will come up and lead us into a time of prayer. Here's the key idea. Jesus' return will end Satan's rule and that changes absolutely everything. Secondly, God is intolerant of evil because it violates his character and kills those he loves. Number three, when we fail to give God the praise he deserves, we are stealing from him. Number four, God's whole purpose in creation and redemption is an intimate relationship between him and us. And number five, Jesus will return to earth as the conquering king and the righteous judge. And we should be saying, as John said in the very end of the book, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Okay, now that you know, do.